0: Welcome to Behind the Knife's AppSite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated AppSite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, BehindTheKnife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day, and dominate the site. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligasure Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the Tac motorized fixation device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Decision curved jaw cordless ultrasonic device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Behind the Knife Absite Review. Today, we're going to cover principles of minimally invasive surgery and endoscopy. So, bear warning, this can be a little bit of a dry information, but there's always a handful of questions on this stuff, so it's definitely worth spending a few minutes on. So, John, let's just dive right into it. So, a lot of it has to do with energy in surgery and the safe use of energy in surgery. So, when we look at it at a cellular level, what is happening in electrosurgery at an intracellular level in the patient?
1: So radio frequency alternating current, raises the tissue temperature as electromagnetic energy is converted intercellularly into kinetic energy, followed by thermal energy to achieve coagulation or cutting. So what's the difference between, you know, we, we always just decided to
0: cut or coag, and I feel like very few of us actually understand it's getting better with that fuse uh, curriculum that's required now in residency, but what's the difference between cut and
1: coagulation? So cut, this is a, a favorite pimp question of mine in the operating too. So cut is continuous low voltage energy, where coagulation is high voltage energy for a low amount of time. Yeah, so it's actually only like 5 or 6% of the duty
0: cycle coagulation is on, but so it's a very high voltage for a low amount of time. Okay, so John, we're in the OR, we're going to use energy. We use multiple energy all the time. And we have to put that dispersive electrode the, the bobby pad so
1: where should that not be placed so it shouldn't be placed on bony prominences, hairy areas scar tissue pressure area or points areas with skin discoloration or previous injury i should also put it in place on limbs with circulatory compromise also shouldn't place uh, near metal implants prosthesis any areas adjacent to leads or electrodes and obviously if there's joy present it should not be near there
0: okay additionally you should never cut the dispersive pad right to a smaller size never cut it okay but one thing that's frequently tested and comes up is patients with implanted cardiac devices and so what steps should be taken to minimize the risk of energy injury to those patients with implanted
1: cardiac devices Yeah, so the dispersive electrode should be placed at the energy vector from the energy instrument avoids the cardiac device on its pathway to the heart. So it shouldn't be placed between the cardiac device and the heart. Yeah, and then we also have the option of using
0: things like bipolar or ultrasonic energy, which would, of course would reduce the risk of um, inadvertent ICD activation or damage. And avoid draping the cord near the ICD on its pathway to the heart. Okay, so let's move into some high-yield MIS pearls. So CO2 pneumoperitonea, what are its physiologic effects on the patient? Let's start with what are its cardiac effects.
1: So it increase, CO2 pneumoperitoneum will increase central venous pressure, which then decreases your venous return, leading to decreased cardiac output. Okay. It would also increase your systemic vascular resistance, leading to increased blood pressure or MAP. Increases your heart rate, increases your pulmonary artery pressure, and it decreases your organ perfusion to a spike in vascular compression. Right. So decreases cardiac out- output, increases
0: MAP and heart rate, increases pulmonary arterial pressure, and decreases organ perfusion. Okay.
1: So what about some pulmonary effects of pneumoperitoneum? So it will increase your mean airway pressure, increase peak inspiratory pressure. Decrease your functional residual capacity due to the elevation of the diaphragm during the pneumoperitoneum, and it will increase your end CO2. Okay, perfect. A renal? You get decreased renal blood flow, which then leads to decreased urine output. It also increase renin and EDH production due to that decreased blood flow. Okay. And then with the- okay. regard to
0: your acid base, so if you're increasing your, your CO2, you're going to drop your pH. So all these things kind of make sense if you think about it, you know, CO2, nomoperitidium, you're raising the pressure. If you think about the physiologic sequela of doing that, these all make sense, but it's important to run through them because these can get you easy points on the exam. So at what intra pressure can patients start to develop
1: cardiopulmonary dysfunction? So anything greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, a normal is 10 to 15. Okay. Yeah. So we don't want to, we definitely don't want to turn our
0: pressure up to that. Usually we're operating at, at 15 millimeters of mercury. Sometimes we'll have to lower that in patients who can't tolerate it very well. So absolutely. What's
1: the vagal nerve response and to insufflation and what can happen? Yeah, this is something you always look out for anytime you initiate pneumoperitoneum, but extreme bradycardia. And you usually get it upon the first time you place the pneumoperitoneum or you start to insufflate. So the treatment for this is that you just immediately desufflate the abdomen. It's persistent bradycardia. You want to consider atropine or glycopyrrolate. if there's no improvement with the desufflation. And that's the way it's going to show up on the test is you're going to be performing a minimally invasive procedure.
0: You're going to insufflate the abdomen and the patient's heart rate is going to, is going to drop precipitously. And the question is going to be, what's your next step? And your next step is to the abdomen. All right, so let's move on to endoscopy. So there's a lot of questions that are showing up on endoscopy, and it's becoming more common. So let's start with an EGD. So what patients
1: uh, should be given antibiotics prior to an EGD? So this is patient-specific. The things you want to look out for in your question stems are immunocompromised patients should all get them, any cirrhotic patients, patients with advanced hematologic malignancies, and also want to consider the procedure that they're undergoing. So we'd give preoperative antibiotics for PEG placements, variceal bleeding control, ERCP for cholangitis, or if you need to perform a biliary drainage. And obviously, if endoscopic ultrasound w- with FNA or pancreatic cysts, we'd give antibiotics. Yeah, so your routine EGDs, I mean, we don't typically give antibiotics, but just be aware it's patient-specific,
0: procedure-specific. There are some instances where you'd want to give prophylactic antibiotics. So let's say you're performing an EGD and, and you know, when visualizing the ampulla of, of otter on endoscopy, what positions are the biliary duct and the pancreatic duct located within the
1: duct? The ampulla of Vader is in the duodenum approximately 10 centimeters distal from the pylorus. Within the ampulla, the pancreatic duct is located at the 1 o'clock position and the biliary duct is at the 11 o'clock position. Right. Okay. Yeah. Biliary duct 11 o'clock, the pancreatic duct at 1 o'clock. Okay. So... Can you
0: describe the two categories of caustic agents that can lead to an esophageal injury
1: when ingested, and what is specific about each one? Yeah, so you have your alkali injuries and your acid injuries. Uh, Your alkali injuries will lead to liquefactive necrosis that extends very rapidly through the esophageal mucosa. So some examples of some agents for this would be ammonia, lye, and sodium hydroxide. Regarding acid injury, you get superficial coagulation necrosis, and that's associated with thrombosis of mucosal blood vessels, and it develops an SCAR.
0: So if you had to choose one, if you you either had to have an acid caustic injury or alkalis, So you just coagulation necrosis versus liquefactive necrosis, which is worse.
1: No, definitely the alkali injury or liquefactive necrosis is worse. Great, absolutely. Okay.
0: So let's talk a little bit about endoscopy and foreign body ingestion. So what are the regions along the esophagus that are uh, physiologically narrower and therefore can be problems with foreign body impactions?
1: So the three spots are the upper esophageal sphincter, the crossover of the aorta, and the lower esophageal sphincter. Some other possible areas include the site of a congenital malformation or prior surgery sites. Okay, so some
0: foreign body ingestions are more emergent or urgent than others. So what are some examples of foreign body ingestion that would require an emergent endoscopy?
1: So in the emerging category, if you see these pop up, it would be if you have a complete esophageal obstruction, or you can't really handle secretions is where that would come up, any button batteries, or obviously sharp objects that are lodged within the esophagus. Yeah, that's great. So sharp objects, those disc batteries that kids like to swallow, those are emergencies. And
0: like you say, if you have a complete impaction, a complete esophageal obstruction. Okay. How about some indications or what are some foreign body ingestions that would require an, an ur- not emergent,
1: but urgent uh, end up? Yeah. we want to perform these within 24 hours. So non-sharp object that's lodged within the esophagus. If you have a non-obstructing food impacted in the esophagus, magnets, sharp objects in the stomach or duo or objects greater by centimeters of length in the stomach or duo.
0: Yeah, I think for test taking, the most important things are recognizing those needs for an emergent uh, endoscopy. So again, complete obstruction, batteries, disbatteries, batteries, or sharp objects in the esophagus uh, need emergent endoscopy. So John, so how, what size of objects are we, do we get worried that may fail to advance to, through the pylorus?
1: Yeah, there's anything greater or equal to two centimeters have a pretty high chance of not passing through. Okay, great. Yeah, two centimeters, anything bigger than that, you worry
0: about it passing through the pylorus. Okay, so moving on to lower GI endoscopy pearls. So something that is occasionally asked is, what are the measures of high quality colonoscopies? You know, maybe they'll give you a list of things and say,
1: you know, which of these is a measure of a high quality colonoscopy? So what are those quality metrics? The big ones are if the cecum has been intubated greater than 90% of all cases. If you have an average withdrawal time greater than six minutes in colonoscopies, this is in patients with normal results with intact anatomy. Uh, Your perforation rate should not exceed one in a thousand screening colonoscopies and in one in 500 colonoscopies overall. Your incidence of post polypectomy bleeding should be less. And then if you do have post polypectomy bleeding, it's managed and not operated in greater than 90% of cases. Yeah. So the big ones there, again, that people like to ask are
0: the, your intubation rate so greater than 90% and that withdrawal time is greater than six minutes uh, in colonoscopies. Those are really your highest yield quality metrics when it comes to colonoscopies. So what about uh, another frequently tested, frequently asked thing is post-polypectomy syndrome. So what is a post-polypectomy syndrome? When does that
1: occur? This occurs after a full thickness thermal injury to the colonic wall after polypectomy. This causes localized inflammation and peritoneal irritation without actual perforation. And how do patients present? Patients will typically feel fine the day of procedure, but the next day they present with fever and localized pain. However, the, the imaging studies will not reveal any perforation. Yeah, so these are patients that come in the next
0: day with fever and maybe even have a leukocytosis, localized pain. And a key there is that they don't have things like free air on their on their imaging studies.
1: So uh, what about management? You can manage, manage the majority of these patients with close observation, serial dial exams, bowel rests, some IV fluids, and
0: antibiotics. Now, sometimes they'll try to trick you and give you a patient that you're thinking post-polypectomy syndrome, And then they have a bunch of free air on their imaging. And so those are the patients that you need to operate on and not manage postoperatively. So be sure to to make that distinction. They like to ask that, and they like to make it a little bit tricky. So be familiar with that. And finally, let's cover some high-yield bronchoscopy. So, John, airway irritation during bronchoscopy can lead to bronchospasms pretty commonly. So how should this be treated? So you want to use a beta-2 agonist, such as the most common one being albuterol. Okay, so albuterol for bronchiospasms during bronchoscopy. So when, let's say we're getting a BAL. So when interpreting this quantitative BAL, what is the uh,
1: diagnostic threshold to treat uh, for pneumonia? Yeah, so you want to look for over 100,000 colony-forming units per milliliter. Okay.
0: So something that's seen infrequently but to be aware of is peanut aspirations and they're a little bit unique so what's special about peanut aspirations and why is it so important to place these
1: uh, patients under observation yeah so when the peanuts break down and release a peanut oil uh, this is a very strong irritant and can cause an intense pneumonitis Okay. like i was to say i haven't seen that one before but maybe this year yeah maybe i've never
0: seen it but, uh, but it's good to know that so you can get that uh, intense pneumonitis after a peanut so yeah, everybody be careful out there with your peanuts Okay, let's let's wrap up with some quick hits. Okay, John, what three uh, quote unquote ingredients are needed for a, a potential OR fire? That'd be your ignition source, fuel, and an oxidizer. Right, ignition source, fuel, and oxidizer. And we have all those things in the OR, right? We have our monopolar energy. Our fuel is usually our chloroprep. That's why it's important to have that drying time and your oxidizer. So especially you know patients who are on face mass, oxygen. Okay, next. So, bipolar energy can be used to safely seal, and achieve hemostasis in blood vessels of up to what size? Yeah, I've actually seen this before. It's up to 7 millimeters in diameter. Yeah, so bipolar energy, 7 millimeters in diameter. Okay, so let's say you're in the OR and you notice a sudden rise in the entitled CO2 followed by a drop.
1: And then the patient gets hypotensive. So, what are you worried about? What happened? And how do you manage this? If you're worried about a CO2 embolus, the treatment for this is place the patient in Trendelenburg position. Uh, also, place them in the left lateral decubitus position and attempt to aspirate the uh, CO2 air embolus through a central line. Okay, so a patient presents with
0: mild tachycardia and tachypnea after an upper endoscop- endoscopic procedure. On a physical exam, you note subtle crepitus of the neck. So what's
1: your next step in management? Yeah, here you want to perform a gastrograph and esophagram. But while barium is superior for demonstrating perforations, Barium in the chest cavity can cause mediastinitis or pleuritis, so you want to avoid it. Good, yeah. So you're concerned with buber perforation
0: with the crepitus in the neck after that procedure. So yeah, gastrograph and water-soluble esophagram. Okay, so when examining a patient suspected of ingestion of either a caustic agent or a foreign body, what physical exam findings should prompt endotracheal intubation?
1: Yeah, so the things you want to look out for, dyspnea, drooling, strider, and hoarseness. These are all caused by severe or or glottic edema and/or necrosis. Great. Okay, so that wraps up our high yield review for minimally
0: invasive surgery endoscopy. Again, you know, not meant to be comprehensive, but hopefully that'll give you a few points. It is high yield, and we're spending just a couple minutes on. So, uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 AB since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife in Medtronic, dominate the absite.